Good morning. morning. Happy St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) What? (laughs) It's good to see everybody. You know, uh, we're starting today a new series in 1 Corinthians. Church in the real world, we're calling it. And uh, I think that we just got done, before Lent, we went through that series in Acts, the church in Acts, which was kind of like the blueprint for the church. And when, when you read the first part of the book of Acts, and you see the church in the first part of the book of Acts, it's pretty intimidating. It's extremely exciting, and it's pretty intimidating, because you see like an idyllic picture of the church, you know, and it is, the, without a doubt, the design, the blueprint for us. You know, it, this is it. This is, this is what it should be. Uh, but then, you, you know, sometimes we're like, how does that work in our world? And fortunately, uh, the, the New Testament authors don't leave us hanging with only an idyllic picture of the church. They also write letters to churches like the Church of Corinth, uh, which is uh, an incredibly different picture of the church, not that long after this church in Jerusalem at the beginning. And we will learn today about Corinth But what we understand about Corinth is this is real people with real nasty stuff and all of that. Jen uh, has this workout video she asked me to uh, do with her. And I watched this guy who was doing this workout. You know, all the people who were in the workout obviously are in great shape and everything. Well, and by the end of the workout, the guy's sweating. And he said, look, real people, real sweat. You know, and he's trying to let you know, this isn't just, you know, anybody who's working out, anybody who's staying in shape, you got to really sweat. We're all real. And, And the church is made up of real people. And the nice thing is when we read the scriptures, we find real people with real sin, real problems, real stuff going on, and God addresses that in the scriptures. He doesn't leave us with just an ideal picture. Welcome to the church. Welcome to Corinth. You know, and that's, that's what today is. It's about welcome to Corinth. Now, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, and this series is going to last for a while, and I'm looking forward to this series. So if we're going to uh, get into Corinthians, uh, naturally, I'm going to have you turn to Acts, <laughs> uh, because why would I have you turn to Acts when we're going into 1 Corinthians? Because of context, right? Every time we go to read a letter, if you saw an email or a letter to someone, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense unless you know who it was from, who it was to, and what the context was. If you just found a note lying on the floor in here and you picked it up and read it, and it had a name that you didn't recognize at the top and a name you didn't recognize at the bottom, and you didn't know what the situation was that they were talking about, the whole thing would be confusing. And yet somehow, we often feel like we pick up the scriptures and don't need to know what's going on behind the scenes, but we really do need to know what's going on behind the scenes. You know, the scriptures can be devotional for us. We can pick it up and we can read it, and God has this uncanny ability through the Holy Spirit to take things completely and totally out of context and apply them to our lives. And it's amazing how he does that at times. However, that's not the ideal way of reading the scripture primarily. The ideal way of reading the scripture primarily is to understand who it was written by, who it was written to, what was this all about, and to understand what the original intention of the author is. And when we do this, we start to get our minds. It's not just how does this thing apply to my life. It's who is God? What's this all about? What was going on? And we start to understand a deeper level of things going on. And then it can come back and apply to our context. So in order to truly understand the scriptures, we have to do contextual work. 
which means if it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, well, we have to know a little bit about Paul, and we have to know a little bit about Corinth, and we definitely have to know about the relationship between Paul and Corinth and the context in which this letter is written. So that leads us to the book of Acts, where Luke is describing the missionary journeys of Paul and his first encounter in Corinth, which is on his second missionary journey. And uh, so he's on a second missionary journey, and he's just come from Athens, and I'm sure you've heard of Athens. And, and then after Athens, he leaves and he's headed to Corinth. And this is his first encounter in 1 Corinthians chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. And I'm going to have you stand with me in honor of God's word, please. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who, was recent, <clears throat> sorry, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. When Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a while. For, <laughs> so Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallia was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into the court. This man, they charged, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sothenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. May God add his richest blessings to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. hundred and sixty-two years ago, What was the date? What was the year? 162 years ago. 1850. Right? Okay. 1850. In 1850, there was four cities, four cities in the world that had a million people or more in 1850. Today, any guesses as to how many cities have a million people or more? 
almost 500 cities in our world have a million people or more. This is 162 years ago, there was four. Now, there's almost 500. Less than 10% of the world lived in cities in 1850. Today, 50% of our world lives in cities. 62 years ago, 1950, there was one city in the world that had 10 million people or more. Any guesses as to what city that was? New York City. New York City. Since then, there's 25 cities with 10 million. In the last 62 years, it's gone from 1 to 25 with 10 million people. Something's changing in our world, isn't it? Isn't our world changing? There's lots of things that are changing. One of the things that's changing in our world is it's becoming urbanized. We are moving more and more toward the city. It's funny because it's so often we look at certain towns like Pottstown where many people have moved out, industry has moved out, and it's moved to the suburbs. But across our globe, the move is not away from cities, it's into cities. And there's the percentage of the population that lives in the city is dramatically increasing over time. And the size of cities is growing immensely. It's called the urbanization of our world. And as the world is urbanized, it doesn't just change the statistics of where people live, it changes the whole culture. Because you know that when you live out here in Coventry, and then you drive, and you get into the city in Philly, is the culture any different? <laughs> the culture is very different. And what happens is, as more and more of the people in our world move into cities, then more of the culture is shifting. And what's more is, it's not only that the culture is shifting within those urban centers, but the way that information technology has advanced in our day and age Instantly, as the culture changes in the city, it begins to permeate the rest of the world because information technology takes it through entertainment, through computers, through whatever else, into every facet of our world. And we watch our world changing culturally rapidly. And many of you look back to the early days of your life and you're like, do I live in the same world? You know, is this actually the same world in which I was raised in? This is a dramatically different world. And we may ask ourselves at times, how in the world is the church going to survive and what is the church going to look like in the middle of all of this? Well, praise be to God that he's given us a picture of an urbanized church in the book of Corinth. You see, why would I bring all of this up? The reason is because Luke seems to be picking up on a strategy here in Acts. See, what happens is, is Paul, and he may have done this out of his own mind, or it may have been that he just followed the Spirit of God and ended up at these places. Either way, God had a strategy, and the strategy by which he was going to advance the kingdom was by taking him from city center to city center to city center, because he knew that in the middle of those city centers, there was massive influence. Right? They, it wasn't, they, they couldn't get on YouTube and, and make a video of themselves preaching and then cast it all throughout the internet. They had to get to the place of cultural influence, which was the urban centers. And as their world was in the process of being urbanized at that point, there was a whole urbanization that was going on in the world at that point as well. And in that process, Paul seems to go from city center to city center, and he shows up and he shares the gospel in the middle of those cities because he wants the gospel to take root, not only in those cities, but he wants it to influence the world. Now, there are three primary cities of immense influence that Paul visits 
throughout his missionary journeys. One is the one that he just came from before this passage, Athens. What was Athens known for? It was known mostly for philosophy. It was known for education. It was the intellectual center of the known world. Anybody ever heard of Socrates or Aristotle or any? They're all Athens people. You know, this is, this is the Greek philosophers. This is the center of academia. In our nation, maybe Boston, you know, where all the colleges are, the academic center. And so Paul strolls up into Athens and goes to the to the place where they all discuss philosophy. And he sits there with all of them and he tries to persuade them of Christ, you know? And he finds something very, very different there than he found in the other places. In the other places, he got beat up and he got ran out of town because he was so offensive. In Athens, they all look at him and they kind of cross their legs and smoke their pipe and scratch their head and say, hmm, you know, that's really interesting, Paul. Well, thanks for sharing. Goodbye. You know, and they just coolly dismiss him. You know, and because he's in the academic center, and that's interesting, and we'll listen to it, but they dismiss him. He, there's some converts, but not many, not many. He's not very, extremely successful there. There's another city that has immense influence in the culture of his day. It's the city of Ephesus. And you know what Ephesus was the center of in that day? Religion. Religion. One of the great wonders of the ancient world is a temple found there, the temple to Diana. Unbelievable superstructure. In Ephesus, there was so much that took place in Ephesus to worship these pagan gods. And you remember what happened to him in Ephesus around all the gods, don't you? I mean, this, he really did get himself a beat down. He had a real good scare in Ephesus because he was messing with the whole religious system. And this was the religious center of the known world. So you have Athens, the academic center. And the intellectual center, the center of ideas. And then you have Ephesus, the religious center. And God's taking him and placing him right in the middle of these cultural influential places. But bigger than both of those cities is the city of Corinth. And Corinth may be more influential than Athens or Ephesus in that known world. Now we've said that there was the academic center and there was the religious center. What other cultural influences are there? Trade and government. Government, he'll get to at the end of his life. That's where he'll end his life is in Rome. That's the, that's the governmental center. But trade, commerce, economy, this is Corinth. Corinth is the money-making place. Okay, this is where people make money. This is where it all happens. This is where it all goes down. Why is that? Well, let's, let's put it this way. The way. Let me give you a little bit of background on Corinth. Rome had sacked Corinth and completely destroyed it, taking it down to rubble. Nothing left but rubble. Then years later, in about 50 B.C., Rome rebuilds Corinth. Okay, they rebuild it from the ground up. And this is about, you know, about 50 years. I think it was 46 B.C. It's about 50 years before Jesus is born. And they rebuild this city. The reason they rebuild this city is because it's so strategic. Now, now they make this the governmental head of that region. So it does have a governmental influence, a political influence over the region. But the real reason they rebuild this city is because anybody know anything about the geography? What, what, kind of, what kind of geography is Corinth in? An isthmus. That's right. So if there's a peninsula in Greece that comes down. Greece comes down and the Adriatic Sea on the one side and the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea on the other side. 
Okay, and then right down in the middle of it comes this peninsula. But in the middle of the peninsula, it cuts in like this and real skinny and then cuts back out. And right in that isthmus right there, right in the middle of it, is Corinth. Now, why would that be strategic? Because no one wants to sail their boat down here because that's crazy waters down here. So the people coming from this sea and the people coming from this sea all come into the ports in Corinth. And right in the middle in this little strip of land is where they land. And they trade all their goods there. Plus you have the, the people coming from the north and the people coming from the south. So it's a truck stop and it's a port town and it's Las Vegas. Okay, and that's what's going on because what happens here is that there's so much going. As a matter of fact, you know, there's this amazing thing. Uh, apparently, they wanted to build a canal through there, and they hadn't quite gotten to it yet. So what they do is they build this huge construction, this massive construction that's almost like a conveyor belt. Okay, and they would pull the boats up onto this thing. They would have thousands of slaves who would have ropes tied around them and they'd pull these boats up onto this like conveyor belt of sorts and roll the boat all the way to the other sea so the boat could be transported from one sea to the other without having to go down around the peninsula and face all those turbulent waters. Believe that? Isn't that crazy what they did in the ancient world? You know? And, and that's how their technology worked. And yet this place, became, can you imagine with some place that has all of, of the trade of the known world converging on it. People pulling massive ships from one sea to another. Just think about this town. You know? There's a ton going on in this town. This is fast paced. This is hustle and bustle. This is swindling and all sorts of stuff going on around in this town. You know? There's a lot going on. And this is Corinth. But as all of the people converge onto this town, it becomes a melting pot. You know, a true melting pot. I mean, there's people of every race, every religion, every color, every nation, every ethnic background, everybody kind of converging in on this place. People of high and low social class and all of that, everybody converging on this town. And it lost identity as any national identity and became a complete international trade town, which is, of course, how cities work this, these days right? They're international trade towns. Our economy is completely international and, and, and America is the melting pot and there's some real similarities here. But as the world there in Corinth got urbanized and as the identity starts to slip, what you find is, is that along with that, the moral threshold, the moral expectations completely drop out of the culture. And there is no bottom there is no known bottom to the immorality of Corinth. Corinth is known by the Romans. This isn't by the Jews. It's known by the Romans as the drunk town, as the immoral town, as the godless town in the, in the moral sense. There was plenty of worship going on there. As a matter of fact, they had a gigantic temple to Aphrodite, and Aphrodite, in this temple, there was at least a thousand shrine prostitutes who would walk around the city trying to help people worship Aphrodite. Do the math, you know? Nasty. The level of human trafficking that was taking place in Corinth was absolutely epic on this level. Corinth, there was a verb. The Romans turned the word Corinth into a verb to describe sexual experimentation. The word became synonymous 
with sexual immorality. They were completely and totally given over to immorality and self-indulgence. And they weren't dumb people. This wasn't an unintelligent people. I mean, this was a Greco-Roman metropolis that was money-making. They took great pride in the lack of boundaries that they had. And they were known to experiment anything they wanted at any time and to wave their banner high. This is Corinth. It's the picture of Corinth. Paul's history with Corinth is really interesting. We're looking at about 50 or 51 AD. Now, how long has that been since Jesus died and rose from the dead? been 20 to 30 years, somewhere in there, you know, about 20 to 30 years, that's it, since Jesus died and rose from the dead. That church in Acts that we talked about where there was Pentecost, where there's word, fellowship, ordinances, and prayer, they devoted themselves, all of that, it's been about 20 years, 20 to 30 years since then. And Paul, we know Paul used to be Saul, and he was persecuting the church at first, and we know that he was going around blasting the church, trying to imprison people, and even he was standing there as the first Christian martyr saw his end, and he, he you know, uh, oversaw the whole thing. Paul was on his road to Damascus, up to persecute people. That's when he encounters Christ, right? And he is called in that moment to be an apostle. He goes on a little bit of a, a preaching uh, stint right away, but then is kind of sent away, and he has to kind of go into the desert and learn what it really means to know God and reflect again and learn the scriptures and all of that. And then he's sent on these missionary journeys. Now, Paul has seen some success in some of the churches, but he's just recently come from Athens. And what happened to him at Athens? Not much. You know, he was coolly dismissed. It was like he walked up into Boston, into Harvard, and decided to talk to them about Christ. And they were like, that's nice. Okay, bye. You know? And he leaves. And that's basically what happened to him. And now he's coming down to Corinth. And here is Corinth. And Corinth is just like Athens in the sense that they are independent thinkers. They're intellectuals. But they're money-making. And they're driven. And there is absolutely no morality. And so how does Paul feel when he comes walking into this place? Paul says to us in the book of Corinthians, I came to you with fear and trembling. <laughs> Does that make sense? Paul comes to them with fear and trembling. Look, Paul is a Roman citizen, but Paul's a Jew. And, and, and Paul, while he's a Roman citizen, we could act like, you know, he's standing up there in Rome, big Roman citizen, but come on. I mean, he's a Jewish religious leader. This guy knows the history of Judaism. He knows the Hebrew scriptures, and he knows how to make some tents. But he just stepped into the real world of his day up into Corinth. And he went to Athens and it didn't work out well for him. And you can tell that in his mind, he's like, I don't know how this is going to go. And why does he really not know how this is going to go? Because a people who stand there, who are making money hand over fist, who take absolute arrogant pride in their own independent thinking and in their lack of morality, how's the gospel going to affect these people? How does that integrate in their lives? What kind of background do they have that would make them open to the gospel? 
I mean, see, the whole thing for them is they stand on their own two feet and they do what's right in their own eyes or what's wrong. They don't care. And they're doing whatever they feel like. They're taking care of themselves. And yet what Paul is trying to say to them is that we are not our own people. We are sheep. And we need to submit to a shepherd. And we are vassals in a kingdom. And we need to submit to the king of kings. How's that message going to affect people who take massive pride in their own independent thinking, who are self-made people? Paul's worried about it. He's extremely worried about it when he comes up into Corinth. Jen and I uh, took, let's see, this was uh, two years ago now. We had our uh, 10th anniversary, 10th wedding anniversary, and we went up to Cape Cod for a little trip to get away. And while we were up there, we went on a whale watch, which was awesome. And we went up to uh, Provincetown. Pro- Is that right? Provincetown. Yes. And when we got up there, I don't know if you've been there, um, but if you've been there, when we stepped into the city, spiritually speaking, wow. Like, I, it was tangible for me, the darkness of this town. And what was interesting was, is, is that the whole culture of the town, obviously, by, by what was displayed, by how people communicated, and, and, and what was going on around us, it was obvious that there was great, great pride in a certain level of immorality. That there was immorality all over the place, and there was massive pride about it. And what I thought when I was there, I was like, wow, it's really hard to pray here. And secondly, is that I cannot imagine trying to plant a church here, you know? Because what it is that the gospel teaches is in direct opposition to what it is that they're trying to promote, you know? So this is like at direct odds because there's arrogant pride saying we're going to do it our way and we're going to do it in immoral ways and all of this. And over here, it's like, no, we're going to do it God's way and we're going to submit to him. And it's just a completely different culture. And that's what Paul would have been walking into in Corinth. But God doesn't leave him alone. So he walks into Corinth and instantly he finds Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla are these wonderful people who uh, they've been booted out of the area of Rome. Now, did you catch why they had been booted out of there? There had been riots in Rome uh, involving the Jews. And particularly, we believe, about Christ. That there had been riots among the Jews about Christ happening in Rome, and these people had been booted out of that area. And so they had to find out what they were going to do with their lives, so they end up landing in Corinth. Now, how many times has stuff happened in our life that just seems like it's random and it's a real pain, you know? And then all of a sudden we find out later that God had some strategic plan. He either had a strategic plan or at least he had a massive redemptive work to make this thing beautiful at the end, which it's the same thing with God. And so here it is that Aquila and Priscilla have to leave their place where they have their business set up, and they come down and they set up shop in Corinth. And wouldn't you know it, just in time, so that when the Apostle Paul, the great missionary of the church, comes walking into this place where he's incredibly intimidated, and he doesn't know what to do, here are Christian, presumably, Christian Jewish tent makers. You can't find anybody who lines up with Paul better, you know? And so Paul's like, Wow, I'm just going to post up with you guys for a while. And he starts making pet tents with them, starts doing business with them, living with them. God had the whole thing planned out, and he finds a spot. Now, on Saturdays, 
Paul doesn't work, he goes to the synagogue. And when he goes to the synagogue, he begins to interact with the, uh, the Jewish population of Corinth. And he tries to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. This doesn't go well for him, which is a pattern in, in many places where Paul is. And this goes particularly bad. And it says they get so abusive that eventually Paul has to leave the synagogue. And it says he shakes off his clothes and, and says, your blood is on your own hands. Does that remind you of anything when you hear that? kind of reminds me of Pilate, doesn't it? <laughs> except, except in this scenario, like Paul doesn't really have a choice. You know what I mean? And it's, it's a different thing, but it's that same imagery that they use of like, it's off my plate now, you know? And Paul's saying, okay, I'm supposed to go to the Jews first and then to the Greeks, you know? Well, I've come to the Jews and they don't want anything to do with me, so I'm washing my hands, I'm, I'm kicking the dust off of the synagogue, and I'm going next door, and he meets this person named Titius Justus. And uh, there's a lot of different theories around who this guy is, but we won't get into that right now. He moves into this house with Titius Justus, and he sets up his mission hub in a home. Now, you see what's happening here the center of mission moves from the synagogue to a home, which is a big transition. So we already see Paul in these urban centers. Now we see him shifting from Jewish religious centers into homes. And this thing is getting into the heart of the city, and it's getting into the heart of the home. And what happens, and this is the most amazing thing, is this guy Crispus, that I think that guy ate a lot of donuts. That was really bad. Sorry, I'm sorry. That's just bad. Anyway, Crispus, he was the synagogue ruler. And I had to do something just to get like a little change of pace there. He was the synagogue ruler. And as soon as Paul leaves the synagogue and gets booted out of the synagogue and he goes over to Titius Justice's house, we're told that when he leaves, the synagogue ruler and his whole family give their life to Christ. Now, this is what you call a breakthrough moment. I mean, this is where Paul is on the missionary journey. He's pounding the streets. He's trying to share the gospel. He's sitting there and, and, and going after it in the synagogue, and no one's hearing anything. And then, fine, all right, I'm going to go over to here. I gave you guys an opportunity, but I still got to try to plant the church here. So I'm going to come over. And this reminds me of in Romans where God says there, the Jews were the branch that was cut off from the vine, and then the, the Gentiles were grafted into that vine. But then eventually they'll produce fruit, and they'll make the Jews jealous, and they'll come back and be plugged back into the vine. This happens in a microcosm right there. Okay, so he's trying to share the gospel with Crispus and all these people. They boot him out. He goes over to Titius Justice's house and sets up a house church. And instantly, Crispus must have been hit by the Spirit of God and all the stuff that Paul was saying made sense. And possibly because he sees how much Paul cares about this gospel that he's even willing to post up with Titius Justice. And he says, wow, this guy's relentless, you know, and it might get him thinking. And all of a sudden, what Paul was saying starts to make sense to him, and he gives his life to the Lord. And this is the leader of the synagogue. Man, this is a God moment. This is a God moment, you know, and you, you got to celebrate the God moments when they happen. This is breakthrough. And so he goes over, and, and now Christmas presumably leaves the whole ruler of the synagogue thing and joins the house church right next door. Titius Justice lived next door to the synagogue. It was his family most likely who dedicated the land for the synagogue. And, and the synagogue ruler leaves the synagogue, comes over and sets up in the house church, no longer as a ruler, now as a lead, as a follower and a learner of Paul. Isn't that incredible? 
I mean, you got to, like, this is, this is real people. This isn't just a story. This isn't just a, a fiction. This is a real thing that happened. We should still be praising God for that moment. That was incredible. It changed the world, you know? And so, so Christmas justice comes over, and then what happens is they just start seeing breakthrough. They start seeing a whole awakening happen across Corinth. All sorts of people start coming to Christ. There's influential people who come to Christ. And, and, the, and the whole town, it, it begins to change. Not, not, the whole town doesn't turn around, but there's a, a renewal that's happening, a calling of people, an awakening of the church of God being born in Corinth of all places. And it's all because God's miraculous work is happening. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when that happens, the Jewish population starts to get furious at this point. Can you imagine the rest of the Jews, after they saw the synagogue ruler go over there, and then they see this whole thing thriving? Oh, the jealousy inside of them must have been immense, and the, and the anger inside of them must have been immense. So they go to Gallio, who is a newly appointed proconsul from Rome in this area, and they start trying to tattle on Paul. And basically what they try to say is, is that Paul is in violation of the Roman rules of how to do, uh, you know, what's allowed in religion. This is not one of the recognized religions, uh, this Christianity thing. And basically what Gallio rules, and this is the ruling for Rome for the next 10 years, basically, in dealing with Christianity, is he says, that's absurd. This is just another sect of Judaism. It's not my, it, I, I shouldn't be dealing with this. You guys are bringing me dumb stuff. I have, I have more important things to do with my time. And so don't bring this to me. And he dismisses the case before Paul even talks. It says, just as Paul was about to talk. I love that. Paul's like, uh, and then, you know, it jumps in. And you get the picture in this whole thing with Corinth that anytime Paul actually went to do something, God had it covered. You know, God already had it covered. And, and it's like he gets kicked out of the synagogue, he wipes it, and next thing you know, the synagogue ruler comes over. They go to abuse him, and remember, he had had this vision by God that said, keep going, Paul, it's going to be okay, no one's going to harm you. And so they bring him to court, and he goes to talk, and who knows, Paul might have messed it up, you know, and he goes to talk, and, and God just jumps in with Gallio speaking and saying, no, this is ridiculous, I'm not dealing with this, this is just another Judeus, uh, Judean sect, you guys deal with it. And what happens at that point? Everybody turns on the current synagogue ruler, a guy named Sothenes. Hang on to that name. Sothenes. And they turn and they beat him. Okay? And what it says is, Gallio, whatever. He wasted my time. I'm not too concerned about it. He got what he deserved. That's what Gallio's doing. Okay, so that is Paul's initial brush with Corinth. There's a couple other things that are important. One is that while he's in Corinth, he, uh, he writes the book of Romans. Um, and also the letters to the, to the Thessalonians. If you've read those, you know that they are theological works. And have you ever noticed that when you're in different places, you relate to God in different ways? Have you ever seen that? Or different groups of people, you kind of relate in different ways. If I go out in the nature, if I'm sitting on my surfboard and there's, you know, I'm sitting out there and the sun's rising and I'm out in nature, or if I'm taking a walk in the, in the woods or I'm riding my bike with my boys and I'm out in nature on a bike path, like my soul kind of goes to rest, you know? And it just kind of goes to rest in God. But when I was studying um, at, in Chicago, when I lived in Chicago, or when I go up to a conference in New York, my mind goes into over, overdrive. And I start thinking different thoughts. Though when I'm in a different kind of culture, different things are available. 
And I believe that that's part of what happened here. This huge theological work of Paul writing to Rome as he's sitting in Corinth. The, you know, it's a great picture of Paul writing to the only city really that probably has way more influence is Rome. And he's writing a letter to them as he's in, in, in Corinth. You know, in the real world, in the hustle and bustle of it all. And he's able to think theologically the way he needs to in order to write to, to uh, the people of Rome. Again, God just kind of sets that stage. I know for me, if I'm studying, I have to worry about where I'm at. If I'm in a coffee shop or if I'm at home quiet or if I'm in an office where there's all sorts of church things going on, it all changes the way I can think and kind of the environment. You know, lighting, all those things can change the way that we, we interact, which is why we work on building sets and doing all sorts of things with an environment in a sanctuary because it affects us. Our environment actually affects the way that we relate to God in the way we relate to each other. And it's interesting that God actually has Paul in Corinth to write those theological works. God knows what he's doing. The same way that he brought Aquila and Priscilla down to meet him, he brought him here, and one of the things he had him do was writing those letters in the meantime. Now, what's happened now is it's, Paul stayed in, by the way, Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months, which is completely and totally unprecedented for Paul. Hey, staying for that long in a place, he's an evangelist, and he's a missionary, and he doesn't have time to hang out in these places for very long because there's a whole world who doesn't know Jesus, and he basically sees it as his personal responsibility to make sure that the entire world knows about Jesus, and he does a really good job of it. It's an incredible, incre when you look at the life of Paul, someday we'll do a, a study on the life of Paul, and when we do, we'll just, our minds will be absolutely blown with how much God was able to accomplish through this one man, okay? But in this environment, Paul just stops at a place, he invests the gospel, it's very intense training, and then he moves on. The fact that he stayed in eight, for 18 months in Corinth is a sign that he really, really sensed the need to invest into Corinth, that he sensed God's open door, and it also, I believe, speaks to the fact that the people of Corinth were completely and totally biblically illiterate, and that he really had to work hard to get enough of the gospel into them to think that this thing could take root. You know, and, and that's not surprising. Even though they were sure and intellectual and capable people, I mean, the chances of them actually knowing the Hebrew scriptures, they don't have time for that, you know? They don't, they don't have any of that. And, and that's where these people were. And so Paul stays there for 18 months, for a year and a half. When you think about that, think, Josh and I have been here for, you know, three and a half years. It'll be four years in August. And um, maybe for some of you, it feels like it's been forever and it's time to get us moving, you know. But for me, it feels like we haven't been here all that long, you know. And if we were to, to just up and leave at this point, it's like, really? You know, <laughs> right now? And Paul, after 18 months, had stayed longer than he stays at most places and he's up and leaving, you know. And, and that's, he's dependent on God saying, this isn't about Paul, this is about God and we got to get things going. I'll leave you with a couple people here or there and I'll pray for you, but I got to go. Okay, so now here it is and it's been about three years since Paul's been in Corinth when we move forward to the letter written to the Corinthians. It's been about three years and he now is uh, in this place where he's been corresponding with them. There's a complete void of leadership and you know, they've had visitors and we'll find out in the next couple weeks here about the visitors that they've had. They've had a guy named Apollos who is an incredible teacher of the scriptures apparently, a pretty smooth guy who everyone seems to like and get along with. Then they also had another guy you might have heard of, Cephas, other name he goes by is Peter who showed up there. And you know, so they've had these big time preachers who have come and spoken to their church, but they haven't hung around. They've been guys who have invested a little bit and then they've left. 
Okay, and what there isn't is real strong, consistent leadership in Corinth. And so where there is a lack of leadership and where there's a lack of vision, the people will perish. That's what the scriptures say. And so things get chaotic. And especially when you're dealing with a culture like Corinth that they're all sitting in. They're sitting in this dark, nasty culture of Corinth, and they're all trying to figure out, what did Paul say about that? What did Apollo say about that? And they're trying to figure out church together, but they're biblically illiterate, basically, and had 18 months of training from this guy, and that's it. And then they're on their own. We should really appreciate what we have at church. You know? We should appreciate it. The fact that we can come here all the time, that there are Bible studies, that there's preaching, that there's worship, that there's a bunch of people, that we have a heritage, that we have years and generations of, of training in the scriptures and all of that. They had 18 months and then they were thrown to the wolves, you know? And uh, so what Paul has to do, and this is, this is the way it works, is that Paul gives uh, letters of correspondence to all the churches, and that's what the epistles are, right? And of course, there was no uh, email, and there was no texting, and there's no phone calls, and there was none of that. There wasn't even a proper mail system like we have. Basically, he would have to send someone to go and check on them, and he'd write them a letter, and they'd come back and tell him what was going on, and he'd write them another letter. We have at least two of Paul's letters to Corinth in the scriptures, but we know that there's more than that because he refers to letters in those scriptures that we don't have record of. And so we know that there were, were more letters that were going out, but God God preserved the ones that we needed to hear in the scriptures and in the canon. And in this letter in particular, what's going on is there was a series of questions that came up, okay? And the questions had to do with the fact that they lived in this crazy culture. And they had all sorts of questions about what do we do with this stuff that's happening around us? How does the church engage it? So, and we'll see as we go throughout the book the different things that were engaged. There was question about divisions in the church, divisions over which leader had the right, you know, the right theology or which leader was the one that really followed divisions over different spiritual gifts and what people thought the church was about and who was the best one around and stuff like that. The biggest issue, it would appear, is sexuality and marriage. No surprise when you're looking at Corinth, okay, that here yeah, in, in the most sexually depraved uh, city on earth, and they're trying to figure out how does the Christian walk in that with sexuality and with marriage. And Paul will address that. Litigation. He speaks to them about lawsuits, which again, we're in the business center of the known world. And there's lawsuits flying all over the place. And so he deals with them on money, you know, and how to interface with each other. He's teaching them basically how to be a church in the real world. This is the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians, or the letter to 1 Corinthians. It's basically, they're asking, Paul, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ affect all of this madness around us? And he responds by telling them, this is how you be church in the real world. That's something we should go through. That's something we should figure out. In a world where the bottom is falling out morally, where there's urbanization, globalization, where all of those things are happening around us at rapid pace, 1 Corinthians is a good book for us to stop and take a look at and say, that might have been true a couple thousand years ago for those people, but God, what does that say to us in our culture now? And so that's what we're doing in this book of 1 Corinthians. That's why we're going to be looking at it, to see how the church works in the real world. Now, uh, we're going to be closing up here, but I want to read the first three verses of the letter of 1 Corinthians, okay? That's what I want to read is the first three verses.
Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother, everybody say it together, Sothenes. Remember that name? You remember the second synagogue ruler who got beat up after trying to get Paul in trouble? Remember what his name was? I mean, just let that sink in for a second. Paul goes to the synagogue, and they kick him out. And he goes over to the house church, and the synagogue ruler comes over and joins the house church. Then they see all sorts of success in the ministry. And then all the Jews get frustrated with him, and they take him to court to which Gallio dismisses them, and everyone turns and beats up the new synagogue ruler, Sothenes. And now, three years later, Paul is writing a letter back to the Corinthians, and who is with him as he's writing this letter other than the second synagogue ruler? Man, the first one was a God moment. This is incredible. You know what I mean? Like, when we think about the furthering of the mission of God, we can't think humanly we have to think authority of god he changes things part of the whole transition that we're going through right now in our church about investing a lot of josh's time to prayer is because we believe that when we engage god in prayer and when we spiritually invest into things god will do profound things profound things that change little things that just one little move, a synagogue ruler switching from the synagogue to a house church changes a city. You know? It's amazing. One move, one profound thing that God does. And this gives authority to Paul, and that's what he's doing in this first verse is he's establishing his authority. He's an apostle, you know? And he's saying, you need to listen to someone. You need leadership. You got to listen to me. But I am not an authority on my own right. I am authority by the call of God. Okay? And, uh, and, and so he's like, do with that what you want, you know? And then in verse 2, he says, to the church of God in Corinth. I love that he calls them the church of God, even though they're a total mess. They're an absolute total mess, and he calls them the church of God. Because it's not just a ministry, it's not just a rescue mission, it's people who are trying to submit their lives to Christ. And even though they're in complete and total shambles, they are the church. And any church that tries to put off like it's not in shambles and like it doesn't have need, that's when I question whether it's really a church. It's really a church when we're a mess and we come to Christ and we say we need you. And this is why Paul says this. He goes on and says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You know the, the phrase for the Marines? The few the proud, the Marines, they're elite, they're set apart. That's the Marines. Well, the church is like that, except exactly the opposite. <laughs> we're, uh, we're set apart, we're holy. But you know why? Not because we're elite, but because we recognize that we're so not elite, you know? And that we are broken, messed up sinners who need a savior. And while Corinth is standing there puffing out its chest, saying we got this and we're doing whatever we want, the church was called to be different than that, called to be holy, called to be a submissive lamb who submits themselves to God, who we are just, we are a bride of Christ. We are a body of Christ. We are not our own. We are under submission. 
submission to the king. We don't live our lives our way. We do it his way. We are radically different than our culture. We are called to be set apart and holy, but not because we are something special, but because we recognize that we aren't, but he is. And what's interesting here is the fact that Paul says you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who's sanctifying our hearts. He's the one who changes our hearts. We can't change our own hearts. We can't make ourselves appreciate and love the right things. We need him to change our hearts. But he does say you are called to be holy, which is, that's on them. Sanctified by Christ Jesus, but called to be holy. So I'm going to change your heart, church, is what God's saying, but you got to come and be holy, okay? And so what that means is, is we can't make ourselves good, we can't do it right, but we step into the position where we give our lives to be in the place where God can be redeeming me. And then it says, that's why this passage talks about people who were baptized, why uh, Acts talks about the people who were baptized, because that picture of baptism that we'll see tonight is the picture of my life is dead. When I rise up out of those waters, my life now is I am part of a people following Christ. I submit myself to Christ up. I'm connected to the body in, and I'm a part of the mission out, and this is what my life is now. I've been buried with him, and no longer do I find what I need in my own strength. I'm submitted to God, and no longer are my buddies just my party buddies and those who make me happy. It's the community of God now, and no longer is my mission just to make money and have fun My mission is to be doing the will of God. And you see as people come and give their lives to Christ that Paul gives them this last thing. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we take this pursuit of Christ, this call that Paul gave to Corinth and he gives to us to be set apart, to be different, to be holy, we need the grace and we need the peace of Christ to do it. We can't do it on our own. But in this culture in which we lived, this room right here, this church, along with all the other churches around, our call is to be different. Our call is to be set apart. Our call is to be holy. And God will change our hearts, but we have to choose to change our lifestyles in order to position ourselves for the receiving of God's grace and peace, which means there's a discipline that says, My life is no longer my own. I'm submitted to Christ. I can't change my heart. He'll change my heart. But I will choose to live my life differently from this point on in submission to him. And he'll take over from there and he will make me different. And that's the basic letter that Paul's given to him. You are church in the real world. And you're going to need the grace and peace of God to do that. And he's going to sanctify your heart. But listen, you've got to be set apart. You've got to be holy. And then he's going to walk us through how to do that over the next few months in the book of First Corinthians. Let's pray.